But without further ado, let's dive into the passage today. Exodus chapter 9, we're going to study verses 13 down through the end of the chapter. I think this is a passage, sometimes when we have a big passage, it's best not to read the whole thing for public worship, but I think this is one of the times where we should. So let's pick up our reading in verse 13, and we'll go down through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. It's an excellent translation of the original Hebrew. The idea of all your plagues could mean I'm now going to send the full force of my plagues. Plagues 1 through 5 were a warm-up for what, or plagues 1 through 6, rather, were a warm-up for what you're about to see. He says, and you, let's see here, he says, uh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people, with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send. Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field, uh, that is in the field and that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, on every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall, uh, you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's, but as for you and your servants, I know 
that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emmer were, in, were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city and went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and hardened his heart and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word, of the, the word of God, and I'm certain that he will add his blessing to the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind. Help us to understand this passage. Beyond that, Lord, help us to understand your character. Help us to know what it is you're trying to reveal about yourself. And truly, you allowed these plagues to take place so that Something about you could be proclaimed in all the earth. Lord, I don't think Liberty, Utah could be any farther away than Egypt. So truly, in all the world, your greatness is being proclaimed and the testimony of these plagues against the enemy of your people stands. And I ask that there would not be a halting fickle heart among us, that we would turn to you in full faith, that bears fruits of repentance, and looks to you for salvation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, it is not a children's church Sunday. You'll be here in the service with us, and so I have a question for you to start the sermon today. If I were to say the word safe, dear children, what would come to your mind? If I were to say safe, what would come to your mind? Perhaps, if you were anything like me when I was a child, you would think baseball. And the runner hits the ball into the outfield, and he rounds first and slides into second, and he beats the throw, and what does the umpire say? Safe. Or maybe you had a bad dream at night. You had a nightmare, and you're scared. And so what do you do? You, you go into your parents' bedroom, and you get between them you get under the covers and your mom says did you have a bad dream and you say yes and she says oh bless your heart you're safe and you feel safe don't you and you should there between your mom and dad and you just had a bad dream you feel safe or maybe you think in terms of a big metal thing that your dad puts valuables in and the guys on youtube crank high into the air and then drop it from 27 stories and watch it smash into the dirt. If your parents have never showed you one of those YouTube videos, maybe they will after church today. They're pretty awesome. But we use the word safe a lot of different ways, don't we? But all of them have sort of the same idea. There's danger about. And here in this location, you can be free from danger and you can, in fact, be safe. Now, children, the world is not a safe place for you. There are many dangers. As the psalm writer would say, many toils, many snares. And I'd like to tell you, children, that your parents lay awake at night worrying 
about things that you might have to face in your lifetime. It's not a safe place. But there are dangers more dangerous than the most dangerous thing you can imagine. There are greater dangers than sickness. There are greater dangers than bad people. The greatest danger that you can possibly face, dear children, is the wrath of God. It's the greatest thing that you can face. The greatest danger that imperils your soul. God knows this, and he wants you to be safe from it. And so today we learn of a God who wants you to be safe from the wrath to come. I've entitled this sermon, The Fear of the Lord is Life. That's taken from Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord there, it says, is the fountain of life. But I can't fit fountain of in that little box, so it's the fear of the Lord is life for our purposes this morning. Let's set a little stage for our understanding of this plague. And plagues one through six, we've seen a pattern. God announces to Pharaoh in his court, then a God announces to Pharaoh more publicly, and then God makes no announcement at all. And here in this plague, we start the third pattern of three again. You say, wait a minute, but there are ten plagues, not nine. And yes, indeed, there are. The first nine follow a pattern, and then the tenth is so severe, it's set off sort of by itself. And so the pattern is continuing. Moses is doing that for effect. He wants us to understand that God is continuing something and that the consequences are ratcheting up higher. God also has Pharaoh in mind. He's trying to communicate to him his relentless nature. He's not going to back off. Pharaoh will let the people go, for God will stay at him. But as we read through the passage, did you start to see something different? Is Moses introducing something different simply to make it more readable, or is Moses introducing something different because in the break of the pattern, God wants us to see something unique? I think it's that one. God is going to break pattern in this plague on several points, and he's going to do so throughout the scene because God is introducing new material to Pharaoh, and he's introducing new material to us. And what God is doing in introducing this new material is telling us his purposes in all of it. Nathan had mentioned it before we sang one of our songs, and I thought, oh no, I hope Nathan doesn't ruin my main point. Steal it from me before I get up to the pulpit. I mean, Nathan picked up on it perfectly. God is communicating very clear, clearly with Pharaoh, and he's breaking the pattern so that it gets Pharaoh's attention. God starts to unveil his purposes in this moment, but he's also unveiling his worldwide purposes that will hold even beyond these events. God is going to start talking specifically why he's doing these things. If you like to write down the points ahead of time, we'll have two major points today. God's resolve and Pharaoh's retreat. The passage breaks down nicely into those little sections, so you can get those headings down right away, and that'll help you keep up a little bit as we go. God's resolve and Pharaoh's retreat. Let's look first at God's resolve in verses 13 through 26. God, of course, tells Moses and Aaron in chapter 9, verse 13, to go warn Pharaoh. And God is forceful in his explanation and in his reasoning. 
yet he's merciful. I want you to notice a pattern. Look at verse 14, the way that God breaks this down. He says, for, now keep going, for this time I will send my plagues on you and yourself. And then you get down and it says, so that, okay? Because this time I'm about to do something. And then he tells us why. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me. Look at it again in verse 15. For, or because by now, because by now, I could have absolutely wiped you out. I could have taken you completely out, but that's not what I want. I'm a God of mercy. That's not what I want to do to you and your people. But I've done this so that, in verse 16, my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Because I'm now bringing this on you so that you would know there's something unique about me. And because I could have wiped you out, and because I'm giving you an out on this one, you'll see something besides my judgment. You'll see my mercy, if you'll but take it. And so God is giving Pharaoh sort of the theological reasons of these plagues. I want you to see different facets of me. Number two, God lays out the facts for Pharaoh. Now, God has the audacity. God is not interpreting these statements. He's just saying them as though he has the complete and absolute power to do so. God is masterfully playing the situation. It's never been one moment out of his control. And he says, I want you to know, Pharaoh, I could have obliterated you and your people by now. I could have wiped you off the face of the earth and preserved all of my people. But, and then he says something that absolutely cuts to the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh perpetuated the notion that the Egyptian gods put him on the throne. And Pharaoh perpetuated the notion that he, though, may not have been a god himself, he was sort of a demigod, a semi-god. And the people were to display godlike devotion to him. And so God undercuts that in two ways. He says, number one, I raised you up. There's no, there's no other gods in control of this. You didn't get to this position by politically outmaneuvering all your brothers and sisters. You didn't get here by some accident. I raised you up because I wanted to show you something about me and my power and my mercy. Now, so you know, dear friends, throughout the Bible, God says that he has raised people up. And quite often, in fact, in every case, God is not referring to a good and kind and benevolent ruler. He's referring to people like Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or Herod. God often raises up tyrants to do something even more special. And this is what God is doing here. He says... You are exalting yourself. I raised you up. I'm the one that put you on your throne, and yet you're the one who's exalting yourself. He uses a word from worship vocabulary. You're, in a sense, worshiping yourself. You're lifting yourself up as an object of worship. You're holding your hand high against the authority of God. And I'm the one who raised you up. I could have obliterated you, but I'm not doing that. And God says, the reason I'm doing that, he states his purposes, is I want you to know, I want 
the world to recognize my power in all the earth. The earth is mine. And as you read through this passage, we won't go down and find them all. But at every point, God is showing that he absolutely controls the affairs of the cosmos, natural phenomenon, the lightning, the thunder, the fire, the hail, the rain, everything, you name it, he's in control of it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. God rules exhaustively in the affairs of men. God is exercising absolute control and he has no problem telling Pharaoh that this is the case. And he says that these plagues are a mere example of his rulership over all things that exist, over the entire nature, over the land, over the earth, over the world. God rules it all. But God is interested here in something else. Yes, God is going to show that he rules over everything. And yes, God is threatening hail, the likes of which Egypt has never seen. And by the way, I meant to mention this before. This was another way that God is sort of undercutting Pharaoh's self-exaltation. This was a popular phrase in Egypt at the time. Egyptologists will point this out, that Egyptians in their pantheon believed that the Nile River was the beginning of all creation. They really were the center of the world. And to say since Egypt was created, was essentially to say since the beginning of time. And so God borrows this little euphemism that they were using. I'm going to bring hail such as has never been seen in Egypt since its founding. He's using their own words, their own language, and saying this is going to be the hailstorm of hailstorms, the greatest hailstorm that's ever been. Go back to the beginning of time. That's what God is threatening. God is threatening unprecedented hail. But he's also offering mercy and forgiveness. And he gives a warning. Now, Pharaoh could have called quits on any of these. He had a pattern. When he asked Moses to take it away, Moses would pray and it would be taken away. And Pharaoh should have been left to conclude that all I have to do is say no more and it will be no more. Pharaoh already has drawn that conclusion. He knows that's the case. And God is giving him, in a sense, two outs. You can call quits to the whole thing, or if you really need to see this hail, at the very least, get innocent people into the barn. Get your animals inside. Get your people inside. And Moses said this in front of a huge party of listening servants and officials. And some of them had seen enough and heard enough to believe Moses. And as soon as this meeting was over, they ran outside and got all of their stuff under solid structures. It was absolutely necessary. Because that brings us to the next point under God's resolve, and that's God's fulfillment. He sent hail that was at least the size of softballs. One of the most amazing things about getting to study and present the Bible for a living in the 21st century is that you can look things up like, how big does hail have to be to kill somebody? And a YouTube video, 20 video YouTube videos will pop right up. 
And this kind of backyard scientist guy, I, I don't know what his credentials are, developed a hail cannon. And let me tell you, a hail cannon is as awesome as it sounds. And he would shoot hail out of his cannon um, at the speed of its terminal velocity. And he would first shoot it off of a human um, crash test dummy, as it were, with a little shock sensor on it. And if the shock sensor broke, that's kind of immediate death. And they started with hail that was about the size of a golf ball, and they just worked their way up. And lo and behold, softball-sized hail ends your life in a really horrific way. Okay? That's, that's, your, that's your viewer warning if you go watch that this afternoon. And then he put up a, like, a, like a car door that he ripped off a car, and he shot the hail, and it's just this huge dent. Hail kills people all over the world. There's people every year that die in freak hailstorms. And scientists can tell you that really, truly, about the size of softballs, hail starts killing people and animals. But God says that this hailstorm is unprecedented. It's unlike any hail that's ever fallen. And so instead of these hailstones being the largest of them being the size of softballs, I think we're left to conclude that the average size, or the smaller of the sizes, were the size of softballs. And this hail is absolutely horrific. It comes tumbling down. And there is thunder that frightens everyone. In fact, it's the one thing that Pharaoh, one of the things that Pharaoh said he'd had enough of. He said, let the thunder and the hail cease. But there's another meteorological phenomenon that's going on here. It says that in the clouds there was fire. Fire flashing in the sky. Now commentators and even some of your modern translations will take that to be lightning. And if your modern translation says lightning, cross it out and write fire. Because Moses is a brilliant man and he knows the difference between fire and lightning. He uses the word fire a lot and it means fire. And he uses the word lightning a lot and it means lightning. And here, he says it's fire. And there is fire in the sky. And later on, we're told that God leads Israel in a pillar of fire in the sky. And so here, there is an emblazoned firestorm in the heavenlies, along with this softball-sized hail, at the least, crashing out of the sky and destroying everything in its path. There's thunder and claps of lightning, no doubt. It's the storm of the world's existence. And the people of Israel are treated to this and they are absolutely terrified and people who disregard the word of the Lord are caught in it and they are killed. And there is death everywhere. Moses, in his recounting of this, you might have read it a couple of times as we read through it, Moses keeps reiterating the terrifying nature of this hailstorm. He says there was there was great hail. There was hail like nobody has ever seen. There was very great hail. The phrase that he uses for very great hail could actually be translated much glory. This was massive, gloriously sized hail. The weighty, it's the word for God's glory. 
Ma'od very kavod, glory. This was terrifying, majestic hail, Moses says. And Moses says that it wiped everything out. Anything that was green and growing was wiped out. Any tree was just utterly destroyed. Moses is focusing here on the agricultural side of things because of something that's to come later in this text. But no doubt, anything that was without a solid roof was absolutely obliterated. Can you imagine? Every little construction project, every little barn that simply had a thatched roof, every home that was covered with grass or mud instead of reinforced with stone and stick. Anything and everything that was cloth or canvas that was keeping the water or the light out was absolutely obliterated. And the other thing, too, is where Pharaoh lives, this section of the country receives less than an inch of rain on average in the year. So not only is it incredibly rare to get rain, but to get rain at this level, mixed in with the hail and the fire in the sky, is an absolutely terrifying experience to anybody who went through it. And yet God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There's no hail, there's no fire, no lightning in the land of Goshen. The people of Israel are completely protected. And we'll see here in a minute, Moses doesn't outline this, but when he goes to see Pharaoh, imagine this, there's hail descending down and it's killing everything in its path. Moses is sent for and he walks from the outside to the inside. And then from the inside, back outside the city. And what we have to believe is that God put sort of a protective dome over Moses. And he walked out into the open where everybody else was afraid to go and where it killed everybody else. And not a single shard of ice fell on that man. It was a thing to behold. A thing to behold. Well, Pharaoh, that brings us to our second point. Pharaoh, of course, retreats. He's reduced to a man who's crying. He sent for Moses. And this word that he sent for Moses is the same word that God commands him to send away my people. Pharaoh should have been sending away the people, but instead, in his fear, he's sending for Moses to make all of these things stop. And then Pharaoh makes this astounding confession in front of Moses. Now, I'm going to put all the points on the screen for you to see at once. Consider how remarkable this is for how close it gets to true repentance and confession without being so. Pharaoh says, I've sinned. Now, some commentators will tell you that this word sinned, that by Pharaoh saying, I've sinned this time, that Pharaoh is backing off of the word sin, that he's using a more generic word for sin, and therefore he's saying something like, I've committed a social faux pas. I don't think that's the case, because all the rest of these words are religious in connotation. And Pharaoh explicitly says God is just. I think Pharaoh really means that he has spiritually committed an iniquity against the Lord. And because of the severity of this storm, he took that to mean that his sin in this account was particularly severe, especially considering the loss of life. He confesses that Yahweh, the Lord, 
is morally just, that he's morally right. This is the word for just. God is just. I've offended the righteous justice of God. I've sinned against it. He says, and all Egypt is guilty with me. Pharaoh understands that it wasn't just his proclamation that sent those people into slavery, but there was a whole team, a whole culture of slaveholders and people who beat them and nurses who threw children into the Nile River. There was a whole culture of subjugation and abuse of these people. And Pharaoh says, my entire nation is guilty of this. I and my people. It's astounding. He admits that Yahweh has to be appeased by an intercessor. Go pray for me. He realizes his prayers alone probably aren't going to cut it. He needs a person to intercede for him. He needs a mediator. He needs a savior. And Pharaoh understands that up to this point, he said one thing and did another. Now he confesses, first and foremost, he says, I will follow through. You can go. You don't have to stay any longer. I mean it this time. Now, let's stop the clock right there. I want you to pretend that you're a pastor for a moment. And somebody comes to you and they say, I've sinned. God is right. I'm wrong. I was swept away with a whole bunch of wrong people. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please pray for me. Can I get baptized? How many of you would, would refrain from baptizing them after this confession? I think you'd be filling up the baptistry. This sounds so good, doesn't it? He says all the right words. He is so close. But everybody, he's not there. He's not there. There's something still in him, and we'll get to that in a moment. This is tragic for Pharaoh. Moses graciously instructs him. He says, I will go out, and I will do this so that you will know that there's nobody like God in all the earth so that you will know that God rules over the earth, that the earth is the Lord's. But Pharaoh is about to sin. Moses sees through this foxhole prayer. You guys know what a foxhole prayer is? A foxhole prayer is a soldier who's stuck in a foxhole. It comes from a soldier who's stuck in a foxhole. And the enemy is pelting them with bullets and artillery shells. And they say something to this effect, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you. Lord, if you, if you just let me live through this, I'll be yours. Some of those foxhole prayers are absolutely legitimate. Martin Luther was a man who gave a foxhole prayer and followed through. But the vast majority of them are forgotten the instant the trouble goes away. And that is the case here with Pharaoh. Moses calls him out on it. He says, I know that you and your servants don't yet fear the Lord. There was something about the way he said it. There was something perhaps about what God had told Moses. 
There was something that tipped Moses off that Pharaoh was not totally sincere in this confession, in this very clear confession, but just for one last little step. And I want you to know that Pharaoh, the text says, had one last card to play. One last card. Egypt has a really long growing season. They've got an early growing season and a late one. Here in the Ogden Valley, we get just, I think, two seasons. Where I grew up in the southeast, we had winter wheat. Farmers would plow up their summer wheat, and then they'd have winter wheat. And that was something similar here. It says in our text that there's wheat, and then there is this substance called emmer. You can buy emmer today, by the way, if you'd like to go to the Amazon. They'll send it to you. I've never, I don't know that I've ever had it. It's a subset of wheat. It grows very nicely over in Egypt. All of the early crops had been wiped out, but Pharaoh realized in the cessation of this hail that the later harvest hadn't yet been touched. In fact, all this irrigation would probably help him. And so, Pharaoh has one little reed left to hang on. He has one last gasp of human capability. He has one last little thing he can take hold of instead of God. And Pharaoh here is given a choice. Accept, put all your hope into this last little human concoction of hope in this last little harvest, or put your trust in God. And Pharaoh here decides that he's going to trust that last little harvest. He's going to cling to that last little bit of human capability. And what Pharaoh doesn't know is that between the end of the hail and the start of the locusts, his opportunity for mercy is over. His fate is sealed from here on out. I don't know exactly when. It may be right after this. It may be just before the plague of the locusts. But friends, listen to the gravity of this. Pharaoh is given a chance. He's given a chance. He's shown mercy. He makes a confession. And he's given a chance to find more mercy from God. And instead, he clings to Pharaoh. He clings to Pharaoh's land. And his opportunity for mercy slips past without him even knowing it. You guys remember the story of Samson? He liked to play with sin, that man. He had this girlfriend, and they were acting silly, and they were playing a game. She would do things to Samson. She would say, the Philistines are upon you. He would jump up and show his strength. But then finally he told her the truth and she cut his hair. And his strength left him. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumped up, fully expecting to have all the power that he had before. But the spirit had left him 
And the text is specific. Samson knew it not. And Pharaoh doesn't know it. But his chances for forgiveness are running away from him faster than he can imagine as he runs toward the wheat and emmer harvests. Moses, of course, pleads. The hail subsides, and the storm goes. So let's wrap up this sermon today with three closing thoughts. They're a little more theological in nature. I hope you'll write them down. What do we learn from this? Number one, the Lord uses his absolute power to teach us about his nature. God doesn't reign absolutely for the sake of reigning absolutely. God doesn't put on power just for the sake of having power. God is a teacher through and through. And he uses this power and this power over nature to tell us something about himself. And he's trying to instruct Pharaoh. He's trying to teach him something about himself. He wants his power to teach us about his character and nature. Now, the second one builds on that one. The Lord uses this absolute power that he has. So, so what's he trying to teach us with this absolute power? He's trying to use his power to highlight his mercy. God God shows this power over the top of the Egyptians. He's going to bring hail that's going to destroy things. And in the face of that threat of destruction, he offers mercy. Get inside. Get inside. And everybody who gets inside is saved. You're safe. Guys, as we said at the very beginning, there is, there are so many dangerous things in this world. But all of them pale in comparison to the danger of falling under the wrath of God. And God knows this. God doesn't want you to come under his wrath. And so God is even willing to use his power over nature his power over circumstances and people to introduce pain into your life to save you from a greater pain down the road. We experience the lesser pain in this life. And those of us who see and understand what God is doing, thank him for the mercy. And those of us who angry at God, see this pain, and we lift our fist in rage against him, when really what he's doing is trying to save us from the greatest danger we could possibly face. And let it be known, pain is sometimes a grace. There's a disease that's commonly known as leprosy. You can still find it in African nations. And do you know what the first thing that goes with these poor people that suffer under this disease. They stop feeling pain. 
I stopped feeling pain. And what happens is their body parts start to wear away and fall off. For example, as they walk, your body adjusts almost every stride to little pains, and you walk a different way. But if you don't feel that, you start creating injuries, and cartilage goes away, bone on bone, and things start deteriorating very quickly in the absence of pain. If you touch a hot pot, which I did recently, you will learn how fast you can move. But it's not fast enough. But what did that pain do? It protected you from a third degree burn. Because of the pain, you need a band-aid. Without it, you might lose the hand. Pain is sometimes a blessing. Sometimes it's a mercy. And God uses his absolute power over all things at times to introduce pain into our lives to keep us from a greater danger. And in this case, he sends the hail to show Pharaoh a greater mercy. You don't have to be under this wrath. Now that brings us to our third point, and it builds on the previous two. And it's this. As we look and see what God is doing, there are two paths we can follow, one of two. Two poles, as it were, two opposite poles. The fear of the Lord. We'll talk about this now, and You'll see that other word up there, but don't focus on that yet. The fear of the Lord is the path to blessing, wisdom, and salvation. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, it means to revere the Lord. Fear is, it's, it's, not, it's not shaking in your boots, trembling, but nor is it a simple acceptance of, of um, a simple acceptance of fact. So, my kids will tell you we have a little joke um, in the Baker home. If I give them an assignment before I go off to work, I say, I'd like your bedrooms to be clean. And when I get back, I expect to see your bedroom clean. And if your bedrooms aren't clean when I get back, what will be the consequences, children? Yes, Charlotte. Big. Yes. Big trouble in Little China. Okay. Now. My children haven't yet challenged me to find out what Big Trouble in Little China would look like. May I make a confession to you? I don't know either, but I'll make it up as I go, okay? Big Trouble in Little China. Don't mess with that. Well, when you're a kid and your dad says something like that, that, that has meaning. It's like, okay, that means business. That, that's, that's what the word means, fear. There's a fear of that. And when God comes to us and tells us something and we say, okay, God means business and he can follow through and he will follow through because he controls all things. And I'm going to come under that because God is in control and he controls me. That's the fear of the Lord. And fearing God's word and coming underneath of it is the path to salvation and grace and blessing. Now, 
if I were to, if before you saw this word on the screen, if I said to you, what's the opposite of the fear of the Lord? You may have come up with something like rebellion or hatred, but it's actually not that at all. The opposite of the fear of the Lord is a simple disregard. You simply don't pay attention to it anymore. You don't listen to it. You don't value it. You hear it, it goes in one ear and out the other, and that is the polar opposite response that will bring great danger into your life. God is coming to you with his word, and he wants you to regard it, he wants you to fear it, he wants you to respond to it, for therein is the path of blessing and wisdom and salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Please help us to fear your word, for there is salvation there and blessing and grace. Lord, put far from us a heart that disregards what you say. Isn't that what the serpent told the man and woman in the garden? Did God actually say? It's the same trick. And so I pray, Lord, that we would an eminent respect for your word, such respect that we would follow through on what you say and show our faith with our feet. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.